0: This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories.
1: They are pretenders among us. People who have mastered the ability to hide their pain, failures, struggles, and inadequacies in life. People who have the ability to mask their imperfections through material wealth and careers. In the last 20 years, social media has exploded and incubated these pretenders to grow in number and attitude. But one day in 2016, one of these pretenders broke away. This is his story. Hi and welcome to the show. My name is and This is The Pretender Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to listen to the latest episode of the Pretender podcast on the AfriPods network right here in Africa. You can also listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or your favorite podcast network of your choice. If you're listening to me for the very first time, I'm a regular guy podcasting from Southern Africa and sharing my real life experiences with other regular people. My life is not perfect and neither is yours. I'm a believer and a Christian, and that's what keeps me afloat. This doesn't shield me or give me any immunity from the challenges that life brings about, but I have the greatest treasure in life, and that is hope in Christ. When all else fails, that alone is my solid ground to persevere through this life. What is your hope based on? Check out more of my other podcasts and see what I've been through along with some of my guests. Hopefully, you will hear why you shouldn't give up in your life, too. Now, in today's show, I talk to special guests about being yourself, living your life to the fullest, and we also delve into his experience with death as well as mental health. We also get to enjoy more of his trademark daily doses. You don't want to miss this one out. Enjoy. All right, so it has taken us five and a half months or more Actually, do more, this.
0: More than five months. We
1: set this up like five months ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, and, yeah, more than five months actually.
1: And we're sharing the blame here.
0: Yeah, I think I'll get like 49.9 the blame.
1: I like that. I like that. Awesome. Okay. Before we get into it, let me just give a brief intro of you to my listeners, and uh, yep. so they can know a bit about you. Obviously, they'll get to know more about you through the conversation. But here goes. So, my guest today is someone I met in the line of my work. Uh, someone who's really captivated me by their sheer, unapologetic uh, uh, approach to being themselves. Um, He's a very intelligent, authentic, and funny person. He's a medical doctor by profession, but ditched that to work in digital health. And by, by ditching, I mean, he's successfully doing what he's doing currently. He's a father, a husband, and really loves to run. He's a team builder, a skill which really comes naturally to him, and we'll get to hear a bit more about that later. And he's actually the originator of the Daily Doses with JK on social media. But to me, it's just another overshare who I would pay <laughs> to, to, to listen to all day besides myself. Welcome to the show, J- Joseph. Thanks for really doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jacob. It's
0: great. Like you said, overshare, like always sharing. Uh, so before we even get into it, yes, the other day I was having a conversation with somebody, and you, you know, in Livingstone, there's Foz FM. It's I, a radio station. Yeah. It's on Mosothuia Building. Yes. And on that building, um, uh, one of the things that caught my attention was the tagline for Force FM. And the tagline is, when we know, you will know. So I live my life in a way that when a thought drops into my mind, I don't want to overthink it, over process it, over polish it, yeah. over marinate it, over prepare it. I'm just like, it drops into my mind. You probably find it. And these days, I have this habit of it to show up on my WhatsApp status. It will yeah. go on the Facebook page. I'll share it on my personal profile on Facebook. Probably it will make it to LinkedIn as well because I'm just like, when I know, you, you will know. But if I don't make it tomorrow <laughs> and I'm planning to drop it yeah, tomorrow.
1: Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's great. You know, I, I, I think being an overshare is, is a very, at least for me, <laughs> it, it feels awkward. I'm always like, ah. Oh, did I really need to say that? Like, I have no, I know, I've got no I know, like, I know. Just if like if I'm saying it, I'm saying it. Why would I be like kicking <laughs> it? You know? So just and then, and then sometimes I, I see people just like wow, he just really shared
0: something. I, I know, yeah, like, I can relate. I swear, <laughs> that's me all the time. I'm just like I'm just. Was I supposed to say that? Like, did I cross the line? I'm just like, anyway, I don't live my life in lines. I'm just like, I was just being. Me. Yeah. Because you never know how much. More no, great
1: It's just either. It's or. just me. It's, it's just, just me all just the time. Awesome yeah. Stuff. So, one of the things that um, early before we could even go into any conversation um, when we met was you are a runner, and. And you're deeply into running. There are very few people I know. Obviously, there's lots of people out there, but the people I know that, um, that really take running uh, seriously are very few. And and I noticed you, you really run, run a lot. I haven't seen you running in the last couple of months mm-hmm, because mm-hmm, you are mm-hmm. nursing an injury. Yep, an injury. <laughs> or oh, just some level of l- laziness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's an yeah. There's a there's a story to that injury as well. But yeah, is it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll talk about it probably. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so one of the things I notice about your pro- approach to running when we at least run. Is yes, we run together. It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's like a science. Yes, and you just don't do it for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, in everything from your breathing r- routines and also. Um, One of the things I picked up was like, we're going to do like a two. It was like a 2K. Two kilometers, yes. Like, let's make up the miles. Like, you know what, that makes sense. Uh You You Uh can make up the miles if you run out of road, you. So tell me a bit more about that, even including your shoes
0: and routes. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So um, running is a very interesting aspect of me. When I was growing up, I was always interested in athletics. But because when I was younger, I used to have some close to asthmatic attacks type of things. So even if I was interested in athletics or running, uh, generally my parents would not allow me to participate in those activities. I would go for these uh, like tryouts, like inter uh, inter what do, what were you inter in house? Yes, house. in my inter house. <laughs> yeah, inter house uh, tryouts, and i would probably be close to being selected. But because of those attacks, I would not make it. So at some point, I was just like, ah, anyway, it's okay, not a problem. I now went into Bustele. I did a lot of Bustele in high school. Those who know me from university when I was at Weidre campus, one of the things that people knew me for at university was Bustele. Whenever our class was playing soccer, I would be there coordinating Bustele with a drum that we bought at Kukawata Cultural Village and singing all those songs for Bustele and supporting the team. That's the energy I could bring to the team. And then later, after I graduated, when I graduated, I was weighing like 69 kgs. That is usually my weight range, 69, 70 yeah. kgs. Then at some point in 2019, I was weighing as high as 685. I was just like, hey, how did this happen? And actually, at that point, I didn't believe really realize.
1: 85? I can't
0: believe it. I swear, I swear. So even I couldn't believe that I was that big. <laughs> because, you know, when you're putting on weight, can't you see yourself yourself yeah, yeah, every yeah. day. You don't see the difference until a friend of mine, no names mentioned, uh, challenged me and said, are you sure you're still the same? I said, Iwe, can't you see that I'm still the same? Then he says, okay, when you go home, go and try your wedding suit and see if you will fit. <laughs> and my wedding suit was like a size 32 waist Aye. and the jacket was size 48. Guys, let's not even lie. I couldn't fit because at that time I was wearing 34, 35 yeah. and jackets I'd wear like 51, 52. Um... So that is what made me realize, oh my God, something needed to change. And at the time, my wife was also starting out this weight loss, weight management thing. And I was helping her figure it out because I thought I was okay. Yeah. Without realizing I needed it. So I went into this thing of a shedding weight from August 2020 to like November. I was able to drop the 15 kgs to like 69, 70 I hit my target. After I hit my target, I started thinking to myself, if I continue with aerobics, I will keep shedding. So let me balance aerobics with running. So that's when I started integrating running. Then I joined the Lusaka Fitness Squad last year, and these guys are committed runners. They are this awesome, energetic community of runners who run together, and there's a lot I learned from the Lusaka Fitness Squad. That's how I started running. Unfortunately, last year, I had an injury in September when we were in the peak of training for the APSA Marathon last year. I call it the much coveted APSA Marathon because it was going to be my novel 42.2 kilometers. And I was really looking forward to it. Then I got an injury like three months, three weeks before the marathon. I was devastated. And it it became very clear one week later that I was not going to run the marathon. I was really sad because we had been training with a team of six other guys. We used to call ourselves the Young Lions of Avondale. Mm. And I used to be like the lead for the young lines of Avondale, coordinating everybody, making sure that we're running together. The things you were talking about, the, sc- the cadence, how we are running, the posture when running, your breathing when you're running, your hydration when you're running. We had even started drinking ORS after our runs because when you run, you sweat. And as you sweat, you're losing some sodium mm-hmm. and some chloride. So when you drink ORS, you're so bringing back all these to my minerals that you lose when you're running stretching before and after a run all those things we had put them in there so when I got that injury I was devastated it was it's what is called um, a shin splint injury it took me 4 months to recover from that injury when I restarted running early this year I did like a challenge for like 36 days because I was turning 36 this year and during that challenge I was fairly okay after that challenge I started now increasing my mileage but I noticed that when I was running I didn't trust my left leg as much as I trusted my right leg So about two months ago, I started having similar pain in my right leg. So after I consulted a physiotherapy friend of mine, he gave me some advice on some strength workouts I could be doing and to stop running for like three to four weeks. So for the past four weeks, I've not been running. I've just been doing strength workouts and aerobics. And I've noticed that that pain has actually disappeared. So I do some certain leg workouts. I do some aerobics as well and also do some walks, like brisk walks. I'm yet to resume running maybe next week because the last two weeks, I've not had any of that pain in my right leg. So the injury had um, an, an effect on my physique, but I think it also had a lot of effects on my mental health okay, because there's part of me that I felt was lost when I couldn't run anymore because running had become a part of me and how I was relating with the community of runners. Yeah.
1: That's, that's, yep.
0: that's
1: perfect. So so in, in, in thinking about it... Um, when you ha- you run, you have a specific routine that you follow. Could you share a bit more about it? How
0: do you yeah, run? so when, when I run, the routine is um, generally our runs are early in the morning. Yeah. So the Lusaka Fitness Squad has got satellites in like six different parts of Lusaka and I think there's a seventh one being launched. So I belong to what is called the Avondale Circuit or, or Satellite. So we meet at specific places together and the runs start at 5 to 6. So if you're running like 10K, you probably use almost the whole hour. If you're doing like 5K, maybe half the hour. It really depends. But the routine for me is get up early. Secondly, I always have some mint sweets with me because it really helps early in the morning to keep your breath uh, fresh, but also just keeps you going. Or you can also use those energy jellies. They're there in ShopRite. They've got some minerals and some, some micronutrients and some energy that they give you, like a dose of energy. When I get to the running space, make sure that you've got the correct size of shoes. And that's because if you're a regular size 43, for instance, in terms of your office shoes, if you're running at the very least, get 44 or 45 because you need space in the shoe. Because again, when the shoe is too big, it's not good. But at least a size bigger is good for your running. A bit of light stretching before the run and a bit of warm up before the run. And as you run, you have to be very clear what kind of run is going to be. Is it going to be like a speed work? Is it going to be like he repeats? Is it just going to be like a regular slow run? Because you're just there keeping it easy. And stay to your plan, stick to your plan. So when you go out there, you find your runner, your fellow runners, are like, Do you want to push it? And you went out to do a slow run, stick to your slow run because that's what is part of your plan. So for me, it's sticking to the plan. Somebody actually told me, Kaya, you're too technical. You overthink some of this. And I'm like, I'm just like, I want to have all the ducks in a row. So, there's a way you do a slow run, there's a way you do your heel repeats, there's a way you do your speed works. Then, when you are done with the run, stretching is important. I, I, at some point, they gave me a name called the stretchologist because I would always be like, Guys, let's stretch. And I had all these uh, great stretches. Everybody was like, After running and you do your stretch with daily doses, because they call me daily doses in the mm-hmm. running space. Uh, if you do your stretches with daily doses, there's a way it refreshes you. saw so stretching is an important part, and hydration. During the run, if you're doing like a long run, make sure you're hydrating along the way. And when you finish the run, make sure you hydrate properly. And for my team, we used to do ORS. If it's a Santa, the way we do long runs, ORS at least a liter or two, so that you rehydrate and give back the body some of the sodium chloride that you use through the sweat.
1: So what you do you classify as a long run? Is it a 10K? <laughs> no, 10K yeah, is not a long run. Why would you be a <laughs> great when you're doing a 10K run? No.
0: So even after a 10K run, you have to hydrate. But mostly. After. But, but during, most during the run, and usually for me, the 10K with my team is just like running all the way. There's no stopping, there's no what. Yeah, it's just running exactly. up to the finish line. Yeah. And when you're done, you'll drink, you drink your water. But people are at different levels of fitness. So there's people who need to drink water every three kilometers or who can't even run a 10K. And for other people, 10K is like a long run. So with runners, it really depends on where you are at in terms of the levels of fitness yeah. and endurance. With my team, the Young Lions of Avondale and most people in the running community, a long run starts from something like 21Ks. Yeah. 21.1, which is like a half marathon yeah. distance, yeah. really, right? Yeah. And people would do things like... So there's what is called the long slow distance run LSD that Lusaka Fitness Squad will have every Saturday Mm -hmm. and with the LSDs usually the minimum distance is like 15 for those who do like my 5 kilometers at least they push themselves to 15 Mm -hmm. and then those who do like my my 10k they can push themselves to 21.1 or 25 or 30 or 35 Mm -hmm. usually those are the buckets and then you go with the group that is running Mm -hmm. that particular distance so for me Mm -hmm. a long run even right now after my injury what I regard a long run is 21.1 minimum
1: I would, agree. I, would, I would agree with that. I'd probably do 21Ks and all mm-hmm. I've thought about doing that. That's like a half marathon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm like averaging 10Ks, especially mm-hmm. when I'm in the groove of it. Okay. Uh, so definitely I would agree with that 21K run. Mm-hmm. I know people who are like averaging, they don't even do the 10K, they do like 18Ks.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? <laughs> there's a guy <laughs> there's a guy I met when I was in Indola because Indola has what they call Indola Fitness Squad mm. so whenever yeah. I travel to different towns I look for fitness squads there yeah. so when I was in Indola last year in June doing some work I went to run with Indola Fitness Squad and when I went there there's this guy who had been doing a challenge so runners like challenges yeah. that's why I there's this thing uh, that do not underestimate the stubbornness and commitment of a runner yeah. because there's a lot of mental strength that running takes yeah that it demands from you. So this guy did a challenge where he was running 21 kilometers every day every for 21 day. days. Day. I am not joking. 21 days. Last year I did a challenge also. I was, a, I, was, I was ambitious. I did a challenge where I was running 10Ks every day for 35 days. Even that surprised me. And the number of my friends in the fitness school, they got like 35 days running 10Ks every day. is so a lot of mental strength commitment because some days I literally run at 21 in the night. Just to make sure I bring in the minimum 10Ks on that particular day. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Very so interesting. You,
1: how do you handle Because I'm, I'm all big about recovery because I mm-hmm. told you obviously before that I do, I play basketball. Actively. Yes. So, running is a cross spot. So, I'll do mm-hmm. five, I'll run three times a week 5K, 5K, then 10K mm-hmm. on the third mm-hmm. So, how, so recovery is a big thing in between my workers, especially at age 36. So.
0: <laughs> bring it, bring it. So how I, I actually, know? these days we don't call it age 36, yeah. we say, I live on the third floor in room number six. <laughs> That's
1: exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. So how how do you handle recovery? If, especially if you're doing the... Because it's easy if I'm doing it every other day. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing your 10K challenge, mm-hmm. you every day for mm-hmm. 35, 36 days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How are you handling your
0: recovery? So um, when I did that challenge, and the idea of the challenge is to push you mm-hmm. to the wall, to stretch you to the limits and just check how far your body can go and I was amazed at how much my body can take during that 35-day challenge because my target was 350Ks after mm-hmm. 35 days I hit almost 400 yeah. because on certain days I used to even go as high as, as, high as 21Ks yeah. uh, some days I'd go as high as 18 K. sometimes I'd go as high as 15Ks but there was no day during that challenge I did less than 10Ks awesome. And, and, and for me, one of the things I learned in that period was the, hum- the, the human body is diverse and the body is dynamic. There's so much the body can take. And I feel like what we know is what actually limits what the body can take. So during a challenge, there is no room to talk about normal recovery because the idea of the challenge is to build a certain level of endurance and push your body to the wall and see how far it can go. So I know that the first, um, in the first 10 days of that challenge, for instance, There were days I would wake up and my body is just telling me, you won't do this. And the first one kilometer would be tough. By the time the body gets into the groove of it, I forget it. I'm just like, we're going. And then 10 cases in. And so in that challenge, there's no room for recovery. But one thing I noticed was there was a way my body was adapting. By the time I got into the second week, of the the, like from day 11 to day 20, Mm -hmm. day 30, day 20 to day 30, the body had adjusted. It was ready for it. Yeah. I would just wake up and go. Wake up and go. That's when I started pulling in like 18Ks, 21Ks on certain days because now the body had just adjusted. My pace changed. My running posture changed. My breathing changed. My general running economy and how I manage it was was definitely optimal. It, I tell people that, that the five-day challenge I did last year transformed me as a runner, which is different from a regular running period where there is no challenge. But challenges are good for a runner. Yeah, back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Because back. actually, in Usaka Fitness Squad, there's what they call the Ubuntu Challenge. That's even crazier. The Ubuntu Challenge is where people are in teams and they all have to run together and bring in the highest mileage in a seven-day period. Mm-hmm. You will be amazed what people are able to pull off, I swear. Next year, when it's taking place, I'll let you know about it because yeah. then maybe we can even do some recordings with people on the challenge. It's amazing what I've seen people do in that challenge. Yeah. People running as high as 400Ks in seven days. Today he rakes in 80k, tomorrow 78k, the other day 70 something. I'm like, mm, which legs are those that you are using? But it's amazing how far a human body can go when you are clear about your goal. Yeah.
1: Right. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, rate
0: your competitive juices. My competitive juices. <laughs> how competitive I am. Yeah. <laughs> Generally in life. <laughs> so, um, Right now, I'm at a place where, where, where I've landed now, in level three, right now. Also in room six, by the way. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've, I've landed at a place where my competitiveness is now focused more on me and the way I was yesterday. I think three years ago or thereabout, I was very competitive. By nature, I'm always about, let me do it and do it better. So we are in a training, am I doing better than the other person? Am I as visible as the other person? Because there's always this thing about visibility in meetings. There's always these things about the value that you bring to a particular sector. So generally very competitive. But I think the last three years, and a lot of the reflections and lessons I've learned the last three years particularly, have shifted that paradigm for me. And now I'm always looking like, okay, fine. Yesterday I was able to do this this way. Am I doing it better today? And what am I doing tomorrow to do better than I'm doing today?
1: Yeah. I like that because you uh, kind of rounded it to you and not focus. Because because there's a bit about that in the running space, right? Because if you if you if you do check the pace, like what I ran ten k, I thought I did really good. And then, huh. so if you if you settled <laughs> about your goals, and I like what you you said earlier about. You, if you're set to do your slow run, set, you do it. Stick you, to your plans. You stick to your plan because if you're checking other people's bases and not focusing on that, which is, and you've applied it to life, which is great about that.
0: So, yeah, very also, important yeah. because competitiveness is a big thing in the running community yeah. and you can actually get that subtle vibe. Yeah, I know. It's never really <laughs> out there, but it's subtle. It's and you can. And for me, it was very sensitive to <clears throat> team dynamics, culture, people's, or uh, uh, people's energies, their vibe. I, I pay attention to all those things. You can actually pick it. But I find that, like I said, it's important to stick to your plan and yeah. to your goals as a person. Yeah.
1: Good. Which kind of uh, provides a segue into the next bit we want to talk about because you uh-huh. highlighted a lot of <laughs> things about yourself, that uh, your values and your goals. So the first time I met you, and I'll go back to this, I was quite in awe of just your unapologetic comfortability <laughs> with being yourself.
0: I remember that meeting. I know,
1: right? <laughs> and I was so struck by the way you're... You're so unfiltered. And by unfiltered I'm not saying you're mm-hmm. sort of carelessly saying, but you're just yeah. a good... You're real. You're, at least for me, and if you're doing a good job of pretending and you're doing a damn good job because... Maybe I least, should make it to some basic magic. At, at least for me... Yeah. It is such a genuineness about what you say, mm-hmm. and it won't always sit well with everybody, I exactly. That's exactly. that's a part about I know. it, you know? I know. But for me, this is it's positive energy, it's mm. very contagious. You walk in a room, the energy will feel it. So, mm-hmm. so one thing that stuck with me though <laughs> is the statement. You only get one shot at this life.
0: Exactly. I
1: have never forgotten that. Yeah. Maybe this is what I w I'll call a podcast. I've never forgotten that. And you never know what impact you have on other, on others or other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And mostly we, we get away without even knowing it. But that yeah. for me has an impact, even mm-hmm. in the way that I, I do certain things. Because I just... A reminder, and I want you to really shed light on it. It's mm-hmm. just a reminder that you don't get a do-over. Yeah. Can you elaborate more
0: on that? Yeah, so it's some of the lessons I've learned the last three years, really. I think when I turned 34, yeah. and I knew that I was going to turn 35 soon, and when I hit 35, I knew that this is, this is it. I'm going to turn 36. I'm just like four years away from 40. I feel like there's something about the third, this fourth decade of life in, in level three, that if you are a person that is very sensitive and likes the basics of life like me, you get to reflect and introspect. And I landed on this on this thing called, you only get one shot of this thing called life because of some of the lessons I've learned in my 30s. And I tell people that because I find that there's this thing in our generation of saying, like I told you earlier, if, if something drops in my mind... Immediately, I drop it on my WhatsApp status. It will make it to my Facebook page. It will make it to, to LinkedIn, highly likely. And so the idea for me is what needs to get done today, Friday, needs yeah. to get done today. I don't believe in cooking for a long time or fermenting for a long time for tomorrow. Yeah. I think it's okay to prepare content and polish it. I appreciate it. But I'm I'm, I'm in this space in my life where I live life on the daily. And that's where this concept of daily doses comes from. And daily doses is a concept that was born out of a reflection around a talk show that is in the works, which was subsequently dubbed as Day to Day with JK. But one of the options we had to think through was Daily Doses. And I said, okay, fine, we'll get Day to Day with JK as the name of the talk show. But the Daily Doses is going to be that's what I'm going to hold on to as my personal culture. And that's because I realized that everything you ever want to get to do in life, if you can't figure out how to do it on the daily, forget about it. It doesn't matter how smart. It doesn't matter what framework it is. I don't care how qualified you are. I don't care which school you went to. But that knowledge, that insight, if you can't distill it to that thing that you can start doing on the daily, nothing changes. And this is a lesson coming out of my weight loss and weight management journey. It's everything I needed to figure out and break it down to that habit to that tendency, to that choice I have to make consistently every day yeah. to make it work. But the other thing for me is, I was, I was telling someone a few months ago that I was actually in a workshop in Uganda a few months ago and they asked me a question uh, what drives you? And my response was being the best version of myself everywhere I show up, that's what drives me. And they go like, isn't that tiring to always have to bring yourself to everything? I said. Ironically, no. Because when you operate in your place of excellence, in the truth of your identity and what you carry as purpose and potential, that's the most refreshing thing that anyone can ever do. Because when you operate in your place of purpose and gifting, I swear you can do work for eight hours. You'll be physically drained, but spiritually, and inside you, you are refreshed. And you're like, let me do it again. So I learned that... When I show up for anything, it's either I show up 10 out of 10, or I don't show up. Because I'm just like, why, why give it 9.9? Yeah. And to conclude it all, the other day I was having a conversation around people who like um, uh, sizing up how they show up depending on the audience. So I'm a Sunday school teacher at church. I get opportunities to speak to people one-on-one because I talk too much. I'm an oversharer. I always find myself in places where... People come around me and they require some form of mentorship and coaching. And I've been doing that for the longest time, trust me, without charges, without anything. Because for me, when I do that, there's a way I connect with myself, right? And so even in that space, one of the things I've learned is there's a lot of people out there who will be like, okay, so since I'm dealing with Sunday school children, these are small children, I'm just going to give it five out of ten effort. Mm. But if I'm going to be speaking to this uh, leadership team for the church, I'll give it an eight, If I'm in the conference for bishops, I'm going to give it a 10. I don't believe in that because I believe that the moment you hold back a part of yourself, it is not the other people that you're doing a disservice. No, it is yourself because it is you that benefits when you show up as your best version, not the other people. So for me, I'm just like every single day I get up, I'm going to be like the sun. My mantra is rise and shine. Whether it's a cloudy day, the sun is up there doing its thing. Whether it's a rainy day, the sun will be up, up there doing its thing, right? Whether there's clouds and there's rain, it will be up there doing its thing on the daily. Like, show up on the daily and do what you're good at on the daily. And keep growing and iterating. One short, guys. Like, there's no part two like a Nigerian movie, season two, like a series. This is the only one that we get. And this could be it. So, show up. There's this thing I say. Dare to live. Dare to be present. But most importantly, dare to be you. Don't leave yourself at the doorstep when you walk into certain rooms just because you think you need to act a certain way to be acceptable. Yeah, that's unfair. That's
1: that's a great. Yep, for sure. <laughs> and, and, so, and so, so when when we got talking a bit more, I was like, uh, so there's obviously we're different in a way, but there are common attributes that yes we, we share. Um, but the one about oversharing is like... It's like the ice, it's like man. the, so I swear, it's in the roof. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm not the only one who volunteers, this like, if we experience, I'll be saying, you know, like... So, So I was like, finally, someone who, who makes me feel like I'm an amateur at this stuff. Like,
0: <laughs> oh my word. And who is a professional?
1: <laughs> I know. So, I was... I was and. I, automatically I felt I felt comfortable because I sort of get what you go through being mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. but I also feel like you understand that. So have you yes. always been an overshare? If you
0: say? I think I've always been. I'm always this guy that is like, if I know something, I'm always trying to be helpful. So if I know how to do something, I would want to show my friend how to do it if they're struggling. Yeah. If there's a lesson I learned, I'll probably share it. I'm, I'm not one that withholds information. I'm not one that would be like, okay, let me keep this one away from this guy. Yeah. No. Yeah. Even in the work environment, if I'm in a meeting, if I have an opinion about something, I feel like I need to share it. I'll lift up my hand and share it. I'm not the type of person that, that goes like, oh, who is in the room? What are they going to think? Because even this whole thing of what are they, are they going to think about me? Somebody, I was talking to somebody, like I told you, I talked to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So somebody was giving me this vibe about, you know, the way people look at me, the way they think about me. I'm like, okay, so, okay, let's, let's talk about them looking at you. So they look at you a certain way. So what? There was no answer. I said, so you see. Oh, I don't know what they're thinking. I'm like, I'm like, do you know one truth about life that you need to learn and be comfortable with? That, is that you will never know ever in this life or the next what another person thinks about you. You will never fully know because people find find ways of filtering how they express, how they see you. But the only person you will ever really know how they think about you is yourself. That's number one. Number two, How you see yourself, how you view yourself, how you value yourself, how you position yourself is how people are going to see you as well. So I told this guy, I said, you know what? For me, it's just about when I show up, I just show up. Like, just show up. I I don't feel like I need to show up and leave a certain part of myself at home. No. I I show up. Any place you go to, they'll be like, if you talk to people in different places, they'll just be like, they can relate to certain attributes about me because... There's no way I'm going to be different in the work environment or in the church environment or at home or in my friend circles or in a workshop or in the field out there. There's a lot of commonalities there because one of the things I'm very intentional about these days, and I tell everybody, and that's one thing that drives me. Don't leave yourself at the doorstep. Just show show up as yourself and bring in yourself. So oversharing has always been a part of me. I'm always like, whatever I learn, I throw it there on LinkedIn. This is the sky, there's LinkedIn, Facebook, and sometimes I go on TikTok, sometimes on Instagram, but mostly it's my WhatsApp status. I throw it there and I put it out there. So I even get questions like, so do you plan this post? I'm like, I don't. (laughs) I've tried to think about how to plan them. But you know, these are things that just happen on the fly. Yesterday, I posted something in the evening, and it was because of a conversation I was having with somebody. I, was, I even told them, I was like, Thank you for inspiring my next post on WhatsApp. Check my WhatsApp status in the next five minutes on my Facebook page. It will be there. And if it was there, and I even threw it on on, um, on LinkedIn. So, yeah, I, I've always been, an, and I think, I don't know whether it's getting worse, but it keeps getting better and crisp.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like that. It keeps getting better.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> the content is also maturing, I guess.
1: Yeah yeah, 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 for sure.
0: Content is maturing.
1: I, I guess um, i have to ask this question because i was gonna ask about um your wife mm-hmm. you know who's not a fan of my oversharing? Mm-hmm.
0: My it's wife. your wife <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: but i will say this she won't stop it anyway because yes, <laughs> that's that's part of who you are I, I, yeah. I, I could share in fact when
0: i started this podcast uh, i think she was, she was very
1: uncomfortable like so what are you gonna like don't worry. <laughs> it's, 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 it's fine. <laughs> it's me. I'm embarrassed already. It's okay. I'm good with it. It's that song
0: I've happened happen to be part <laughs> you're,
1: you're going to be part of it. So, and I like to give credit as much as possible to the important woman in mm-hmm. our lives. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say women. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Even if I'm supposed to say it like that. Because as yes. a mother, someone. Yes. Some point. yes. So, Tell me the role that she's played, your wife has played, and she continues to play in your life, and how she's embraced your personality. Especially that someone of your personality is overwhelming, and um, yeah. they are sure all
0: I also feel overwhelmed by myself,
1: <laughs> by the way. I get that totally. I get that totally. And so, when people look at you and they, they think your wife is just in the background, and yet. You know what, I always call her the puppeteer. She's, she's controlling
0: something.
1: Yeah. There are some things <laughs> that she's
0: controlling <laughs> yeah. that nobody's seeing. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So talk, tell me more about um, the role that she plays in your life and uh, how she's embraced your personality.
0: Yeah, so my wife and I met when mm-hmm. I was in university. Um, she was doing a part-time job at an internet cafe at Ridgeway. Yeah. I was in sixth year. Actually, we met when I was in fifth year, going into sixth year. We knew each other for like a year, and then we started dating like, almost like a year later. So my wife has always known from the get go, because let me tell you, like um, eight, eight weeks into our relationship, I was walking into office as the president for Unzaso Ridgeway Campus and I ran and opposed for that election. So I was contesting for the presidency for that election and I ran and opposed. And the funny thing that happened, that's why I, I have to go back there, is during that <laughs> that manifesto night. So everybody gave their manifestos, but because it's a manifesto night, I still had to speak and give my vision as a president because there was no opponent. Before I started, they just called me out. Now we're going to call upon Joseph. Before I could even settle on the podium, I just saw a group of people from the back carrying somebody on a chair, covered in a... a, They got somebody's uh, jumper and covered her with it and brought her right in front of the stage. Manakateka, manakateka. Hey, introduce her, introduce her. <laughs> so I went there, and covered her the club hey, in the hall, and then I introduced her. No, this is my girlfriend. You can call her manakateka. That's how my wife was known for the longest time. Up to nowadays, people who come and say Wanakateka, That was like 2013, <laughs> you know. And so I think from the very early age, uh, early stages of our relationship, my wife knew. And then I was quite active in Kayalfa and interdenominational fellowship. I was quite active in the Catholic Students Movement at, at national level and at national level. And I was doing a lot of local and international travel. So she knew the kind of person I was. And I think at the beginning of the of the relationship, there was even she was like, mm, "Do you have political ambitions?" I'm like, "I don't." <laughs> <laughs> You know, not that it was going to be a problem because my wife is uh, passionate about international relations and political science. And right now she's actually going into a final semester for that program at Unilas. Mm -hmm. It was not going to be a problem. So she has seen this version of me from the get go. I feel like she's just seen it grow and get refined. The role that she plays is that everybody sees my wife as a quiet person. I think she is a quiet person. I think. But I don't think she's as quiet as other people know her to be. <laughs> and I don't think she's in the background as other people have made her to be. Because even like I talked about the weight loss program, she's the one that started out at first because when we we're expecting, she really gets big. But she was able to bring herself down from like 106 kgs to like 71. All I was doing, I was chipping in and providing advice as a medical doctor, you know, because of my background. Because me, I thought I was okay. Can't you, I'm also like 85, <laughs> you know. And so through that process, even landing on the daily doses concept was because of the things that she played a role because she's also a certified life coach, yeah. she's also a psychosocial counsellor, and she's passionate about weight loss and wellness. So through that process and everything I learned through that cross-collaborative coaching, that's how even the concept of daily doses became even something that make, makes a lot of sense. And because of the kind of person that she is, she's not somebody that you like see in the limelight limelight, Mm -hmm. but she's this person that throws some nuggets around. And my wife is this person that can ask you like random questions. And sometimes they can be like elementary level type of questions Mm -hmm. that leave you thinking. And as, because my mind absorbs everything people say, it will maybe stir up a thought or a process in me that lands onto a lesson that I share and people get to learn about it. So she's been this background person that plays this puppeteer role. And keep steering me on. Because even with the daily doses bit even for me to manage my weight, even for me to be the runner that I am, she's the critical part of the kind of food that I eat and how those meals are made to be healthy meals, yeah. right? And so even as part of that conversation, there's now this thing where we do this weight loss coaching for people together, and we're about to relaunch another model of weight loss coaching for people in the next month or so because of how we sort of collaborate. Yeah, so yeah, to a greater extent... It's never been a surprise. (laughs) Because I think even before we started dating, she knew this guy who was crazy, who was funny, who was all out and unapologetic and just shows up, you know. And I just bring myself to everything that I do. Yeah.
1: Amazing. That's a great one. So we're going to go into something a bit more um, uh, heavy, so to speak. Not a problem. Um, And I want to talk about uh, death. Oh yeah and um i want to start off with um with with um something that's really dear and deep to you and then when i was talking to you i i realized I mean we really we really spend a lot of time in January to really speak oh yes and, yes um, yes I, in speaking to you i realized how much your dad means to you i'm not going to say meant means
0: yep it still it's means a quite a lot yeah thing. yeah
1: and how his death really impacted your life. In fact, you did um, mention to me um, in speaking about how you've linked the first uh, birthday challenge run to your dad. Yes. And your dad's death and dealing with that. Why has it been such a great influence on your life? And um, also, why is it... um, Because death is heavy, but his death really Mm -hmm. hit you so hard.
0: Yeah, so um, my dad... Um, when growing up, because um, I grew up in Mumbai, and my father used to work for Barclays back, back in the day, before they disappeared and reappeared as Apsa. <laughs> oh, <laughs> reappeared as Barclays and then, became Absa. Yeah. But he used to work for, for Barclays for the longest time. But one of the things I picked very early about my father was that he was a leader. My father was a leader. Throw him anywhere, he would thrive as a leader. <laughs> and you'd find that in almost all executives my father served, He most likely was chairperson. If he served in any other position, maybe secretary general. But I never heard of a place where my father was like a treasurer or like a committee member. He was either the secretary, but highly likely a chairperson. And even at the point of death, because he died in 2019 in Livingston, at the time he was what they call the coordinator of the parish at Our Lady of Angels Parish in Livingston. When you're driving into Livingston, there's that Catholic church here. That's where my my parents were congregating. So one of the things that struck me about my parents... My father and my mother, both of them, they are natural leaders. Like when they show up in an environment and something needs to get done, there's no waiting to say, okay, let them ask us. They just jump on it. (laughs) And that's me. When I jump into an environment and I feel like, oh, that needs to be done, I jump on it. I don't wait. I don't wait to be pointed to things. And that's because my parents taught me one thing very early, both my parents, my mother and my father. And I talk about both of them because I find that as I celebrate the life of my father, I also need to continue celebrating the life of my mother that I still have right now. Because there's always this temptation to always celebrate and reflect and cry mm. about this parent who is lost. And forget the one that you still have, that you can still go and have conversations about and have conversations with. So my parents taught me one thing very early. They would say this thing. I'll say it in Nyanja, then I'll interpret it. they would say, Nchito, you mukira weka ukayona Ipepuka. But Nchito, kutuma, Iba olo idema." So in essence, what they were teaching us was be proactive. If you see there's something that needs to get done in an environment that you walk into before you are asked to do it, since you've already seen it, there should be something God has placed in you that has the ability to fix what you have seen up to a certain extent with due respect to other people in the room as opposed to waiting until somebody says oh Jacob, do you want to help us do that? that's like somebody's commanding you but if there's something new that sees that something is wrong there's probably something new that has the capacity to fix it that's one thing I learned and that's something I saw my parents doing consistently throughout my life the reason my father's death hit me really hard is because when I grow older guys, like I said, I like oversharing I started doing this thing of calling for meetings in the house. <laughs> Shall I confess? <laughs> so I remember one of the first meetings I called was in 2007. I was in university at the time, and I noticed that in now because I was born and bred Catholic. Um, in May, it's called the month of the Rosary, so you would you would it's the month of Mary. You're praying the Rosary together. When first June comes, we are not praying together anymore. October is the month of the Rosary. And we start praying together the rosary the whole month of October. First of November comes that we don't pray together. I also have all those things at the back of my mind. So when I went to university, I felt like okay, now I'm a bit grown up, like close to adulthood. Let's talk about it. So that time my father was working in Indola and the family house was still in, in Mumbwa. So I called my father one of those days. I was doing like a three days retreat for being spiritual and prayerful. On day two, it was upon my heart. I said, I think we need to start praying as a family. So I called my father. I said, I feel like we need to start praying together as a family. So I'm calling to get permission <laughs> <laughs> to have a meeting today with the family so that we start praying. What i put on the agenda for the prayers is A, B, C, D. And that was on my, on my birthday in 2007. I think I was turning like 20. And that's how my father gave me the permission. And that evening I called everybody together, my mother, my younger siblings and other people that we used to stay with together into a meeting. And I told them starting today we're going to start praying. And I think for that duration of that vacation I was leading the prayers. And that's how we started praying at my father's house in 2007 one of the few meetings one of the many meetings i used to sort of a champion and because of being being the bold person that doesn't get scared to speak out and i don't like living myself at the doorstep my father and i started getting closer in my adult life because then my father and i could actually talk to the point where i would actually be if i don't like something that my father is doing or i'm not happy with the course we are taking in terms of a direction i would call him we would sit. If I'm in Livingston for work at the time I was in Livingston, I would visit them and have a disc- an open conversation with them about it. And my father would do the same for me. And because of those conversations, there's a lot I got to learn from my father because it was no longer just a tradition of father-son relationship. He became like my friend. And so even these days, the moments I miss, those moments where like, I clinched a deal for team building, I would probably have picked up the phone and said, Ha! It's the Kunoanzat, not him who never did consultancies. Us, we are doing consultancies in the corporate space. Check me out. <laughs> it had gotten to that level of friendship. Because even on, a, on the day of my wedding, I remember walking up to him after coming out of the church. Office, I'm like, my own ring. Not you people were having rings from like in the 80s. This is like a new ring from 2015. Like, is it registering that I'm a married man? That kind of conversation. And we we'll laugh about it. He even talked about it in his speech at our reception. So my father and I had become like this friends. My mother is also like a friend. We talk quite a lot with my mother as well because we've also had to deal with a lot the last five years since my father died and all that. But because I'm always this guy that is an oversharer, who wants to have those conversations nobody wants to have in the family, who is always calling for meetings, talk about stuff and getting things done, it made me very close to my parents. And so my father's death hit me because it happened at the time when I least expected it. That was his first and only admission since my father was born. So even when he was sick, because I'm a medical doctor by training, when I got to Livingstone that Wednesday evening, he was in Batoka ward, I could clearly say, hmm, things are not looking too good. Thursday morning when I went to see him, I could see that here we are going south. And I talked to my mother about it. I talked to my, to my older brother about it. And I called my young brothers who were in Lusaka at the time. I said, guys, you need to come to Livingstone and see your father and say your goodbyes. I'm not the bearer of bad news, but where we are at, if my, if our father comes back, it will be by a miracle. But is at the place where we need just to come and make peace. Talk to your father. He's able to hear you. Say your sorries. Say your thank yous. Give your tributes to him so he goes knowing that we are going to be fine. Reassure him that you have it all together. Because as a father, he's concerned about our well-being if he does die. But he needs to know that even mom is going to be looked after. That should be good. And that's one of the things I told my father when he was sick in hospital, when I had my own one-on-one with him. I said he couldn't talk back because he was in coma, but you could see him shedding tears when I was talking to him. So he was like, I want you to know that you raised a good son. I'm not saying you raised a perfect son, but you raised a good son. And because you raised a good son, I can't speak for anybody else but myself, I want you to know I will be there for mom. I will look out for her in the best way that I can. When I can, I will do. What I can't, I will just hold her hand and say, I am here. But for the things that she shares with me and she's going through and the things we might go through if you die, just know that your Alice Kamiyazi is in safe hands. Joseph is out there. He's going to look out for her. And even during my tributes, because we had two masses, one in Livingston and one in in Mumbwa, yeah. in my tributes, I ended both of my tributes with a statement, looking at my mother in the eye, and I broke down in the moment, and I told her, I want you to know that I am here, that I will look out for you, I'm going to be present, in the best way that I know how to be present as your son. Even when we did this memorial last year, and we did the unveiling of the tombstone, at the end of my tribute, I... Looked at my mother in the eye and told her again. I said, Mom, I want you to know that the promise I made to Dad and the promise I made to you when he died is still valid. I'm still here. I'm going to be here, and I'll do the best that I can to work with you. So when my father died, I lost a friend, not just a father. Yeah.
1: That's really a touching story. Great one. Um and, and building on from this, you you told me as part of the process you wanted to to open a platform on which people can freely talk about death. Um, because and I agree with you, it's it's I think it's not just Sambian culture, it's world over. You yes. don't wanna speak about death because of the mystery that it has the question mm-hmm. and all that. Um uh, Because it's something we always shut off and shy away from. So uh, tell me why you're passionate about uh, doing this and where that is at.
0: The reason why I'm passionate about doing this is because one of the things I've learned after my father's death is the same thing that you've said. People don't want to talk about it. And it's not just a Zambian thing, but I think it's worse in our settings. And I've done a lot of research and tried to read some articles online. One of the things I've learned is people don't want to talk about grief. And I've, I've talked to people in the church, I've talked to people in family, I've talked to people in, just generally in life, you find that when you talk about issues to do with grief and the loss of a loved one, people just want to end the conversation like right now. But all of us are carrying the pain of the loss of a loved one. And one of the TED Talks I listened to about grief, because I've been trying to listen to a lot of content about it, this lady was sharing her experience uh, of losing a husband. You're talking about one of the hardest things to, to go through in life is to lose a spouse because in the whole wide world, that's a person that knows you at your highs and your lows. That's a person that knows you better than not even your parents know you because of the closeness and the intimacy that you share. And when you talk about intimacy, it's not just about physical intimacy. It's just the fact that this is a person that you can be vulnerable to and they see you in and out and they still stay with you. And when you lose that person, it's like you lose a part of yourself. It's like a part of your soul goes with them. And now she was saying that one of the lessons she has learned, which makes a lot of sense, is that a lot of people talk about you. No, don't worry. Time heals all wounds. You're going to move on in no time. She said something really profound that I Always, always hold dear to my heart. She says there's no such thing as moving on from grief, but there's definitely something called moving forward with the grief because it's a lifelong experience. The person that you have lost, whether it is a parent, a child, a sibling, because they played a role in your life, there's nothing like you're going to move on and say I've forgotten about it because there's nobody's going to come and take their place. You get it. They'll say, no, you're going to remarry. No, what and what. That person that left left a mark, they left experiences, they left moments, they left with a part of you because you invested a part of yourself in their life. So that issue of moving forward with grief is a critical thing and that's why I'm passionate about it. And that's because I've also learned from my own journey that there are certain things that you can do practically to handle your grief and own it. Instead of it uh, bringing you down, it can actually be a stepping stone for you to move forward because there's such a thing as you have to go through a certain type of pain to qualify to speak to certain audiences. Without, before my father's death, I could speak to people about grief, but the experience of losing my father within my nuclear space is a whole different ballgame. I'd lost other very close relatives before, like my late aunt, Aunt Kwi -kwi, who died in 2016. Her husband who died in 2002. That was like the biggest hit initially because I'd never lost somebody that I lived with in the same house that closely before. That almost actually broke me. That's another story for another day. I don't think I even shared that with you. But when I lost my father, something shifted in me. And when that thing shifted in me, I realized there's an opportunity here to talk to people about it. And the first thing that I've learned about grief is the first remedy is to talk about it. Is to talk about it. Just talking about it is a first step towards acceptance. It's a first step towards healing. It's a first step to nursing what I call the grief wound wound. Because if you cut yourself, there's a wound. That wound needs to be managed. It's painful to clean it in the first few days. But you must be courageous enough to clean it so that in the future what remains is a scar, but the bleeding is done. But a lot of people today lost parents 10 years ago. They lost a spouse 10 years ago. They lost a sibling years ago. But they have not reconciled with their grief. So... Certain triggers keep triggering them into that emotional state. There are some people I talk to who are like, I can't even go to another funeral for the past five years. I'm like, why? Because I lost my mother in very difficult circumstances. And I'm just like, we need to reconcile with that experience. Let's get back to that experience because grief causes a bit of trauma and that trauma that it causes has to be managed and treated. And you can actually get help for it, yeah. And
1: one of the aspects that's Uh, of death that I'm intrigued with is being at peace with uh, my own death.
0: Yes. (laughs)
1: And uh, after time, (laughs) I think we, I guess it is painful because when we are left, we think about when someone leaves us. Yes. That is more painful because we're about to obey. But but still, there's the reason I, I feel like Part of the reason we are afraid to speak about death and deal with our grief is the fact that we have not actually dealt with the fact that we are going to die one and day and we don't even know when, when? Or how. I know, right? You no, know, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that you've considered or thought about or processed?
0: I've actually thought about my death a number of times, not because I want to take my life or anything, yeah. but because I'm also a realist. I like to think about reality. I'm just like the day you are born, somehow, somewhere, there could be a day when you're going to die. We have to come to terms with it. And that's why I live with this philosophy of daily doses and the fact that you have to give it your best shot every single day. When you show up, like one of our line managers, Mandy, says show up and shut it down. So just show up and do it. And so the concept of your own death actually like you've said I think is one of the reasons people want to talk about death because I feel like they have to look in the mirror and say you're also going to die one day, you're also going to be in a coffin one day if at all you die a death that warrants a coffin you know certain days you can't even find a body to bury worst case scenario I've actually thought about my death and as I share this I know it sits differently with different people and different people who listen to this podcast might think about it differently but I'll share it either way I've even got to the point where I think about what's my preferred way to die and in what kind of a place would I want to die. I've already thought about the fact that I don't want to die after a long illness because I don't want to trouble people around me. I also don't want to die a sudden death because I feel like it would be too traumatic for those around me. Mm. I've thought about death if I had to choose where to die. Like if I go to a point where it's evident I'm about to die and people know I'm going to die, it would be okay if they could take me even just like to die maybe next to a water body like maybe at a beach, something quiet and serene. I'm hearing the birds chirping away. I can hear the sound of water splashing next to to my mattress or stretcher. And I'm just going at peace, like I'm drifting into the sea and off I go. I've gotten to that point where I can even go like, if I had to die, I would want to die that way. And that's because I'm a realist. I know that one day death is going to come. And that's why I live my life on the daily. Because I don't want to wake up tomorrow and say, ah, I was supposed to do that yesterday. I didn't do it. For what? There's no reason. There's just excuses. That's why one of the hashtags is hashtag team no excuses. Show up and shut it down. So I've thought about it. That's why I can talk about death and grief. People respond differently. Just before this uh, podcast, I was meeting somebody. And one of the things we were talking about actually was grief. And he's a mental health specialist and we're trying to do some work together. One of the things that was very clear in that discussion was the trauma grief causes for people and the the unresolved grief people carry with them to board meetings, how it affects their decision making, how it affects their corporate profile, how it affects their businesses, but also just how it affects their own personal well-being and peace of mind. And when you resolve with it, you're able to do amazing things. Like I was sharing at Unilus, this thing for being an overshare, I was invited to go to Unilus and give a career talk. And you know the date I was giving the career talk on was 19th of May. And 19th of May is the day my father died. And I told those guys, because I was talking about mental health, and I told them about how after, I actually had to go for a therapy session last year. There's what is called spiritual inner healing therapy. It's just one therapy session, three hours max. There's amazing things that that therapy does, how it's about to reconcile some trauma that you've gone through and you're able to find your balance again. And it launches you into a space where you begin to find your balance again. And I told the guys at that uh, at that uh, career talk that if I had not done that therapy and if I had not reconciled with my grief and the loss of my father last year, I would have not been here today because the previous years, 19th of May was a dark day. 18th of May, which is a birthday for my third child, who was turning two this year, was also a dark day. So last year when he was turning one, I was really sad because I knew that this was the last day my father was alive. But this is the day my son was born. So I'm just like in this place where I'm in limbo. But after I went through that therapy session and had a number of sessions with a friend of mine that I was talking to about grief, and they were also sharing their own experiences, a lot of that grief was reconciled and resolved. And I was able to get to a place where, right back on the 18th my son was turning to this year, I was happy that he was turning to and I could see the life in him. On the 19th, I actually showed up there with the briefcase that my father used to have and I did that career talk to honor the leader my father was because when my father was given an opportunity to show up, his principle was if there's an opportunity to serve humanity and you have the time, go and serve. So I showed up for that career talk because I'd resolved the acute grief and I'd reconciled it within myself. If I hadn't, 19th of May would have been like, I can't do it, guys. I'm at home. I'm drowning in my sorrows. Give me, give me my space. Give me space. <laughs> yeah.
1: So where did you do this spiritual inner healing therapy? Is it something that... Um,
0: it's readily available, actually. So there's a lady in... Um, what's that place called? You know where Forest Park Mall is? Right. In, uh, is it Roma Park? Along that Zambezi Road? Yeah. Just before the mall, you turn to your left. There's a tarred road there. And then when you turn into your, at that tarred road, the first turn to your left, on the left there's a place there where okay. they do spiritual she inner she healing therapy. The
1: link in the, in the show notes yeah,
0: I'll, yeah I'll, I'll definitely share the link because uh, I'll share the link and the contact details yeah, for the therapist. I'm actually also in training to become a therapist for being an overshare and trying to help uh, yeah. people. <laughs> <Perfect>.
1: <laughs> so, so my take with uh, being at peace with my own death is, is it gives me something mm-hmm. to look for. Every morning I wake up, I'm excited mm-hmm. because... Um, I understand that I do not control well, my own life. I mean mm-hmm. the decisions that I have to make. But today could be my last. Mm-hmm. So if I get the next day, I am excited that, because that's I know up. Sure yeah. yeah, and it's it, it gives me a different view to life. So I I enjoy life every mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. The other thing that. Um, helps me like to deal with the aspect of death is just not caring about the unnecessary stuff
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because
1: i have processed that you know what any day could i could go so why would i waste time on unhealthy competition Mm -hmm. comparison Mm -hmm. or what Mm -hmm. or being um envious or Mm -hmm. angry about what what others are doing and mm-hmm. that sort mm-hmm. of thing I and mean, mm-hmm. just wasting time. Yeah. You do still waste time yeah. <laughs> of course. But, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the, the part that I feel is I I have no control over how, where, and when I go. Mm-hmm. But the part that so I, I don't really stress that much. You haven't think
0: about thought about it.
1: I have thought yeah. but like I have no specific where For I fairness. wanna go. Okay. And and I go, I go mm-hmm. I think it's I look forward to the After not the process mm-hmm. of. Okay You know okay. like the yes. hope, It's yeah. pain It's when you stop breathing So it's, no, it's <laughs> like
0: What's next? I'm just like
1: Yeah but What's next? I think I'm at peace with mm-hmm. I mean, completely What I honestly struggle mm-hmm. I've not come at peace with I mean the process of mm-hmm. Is I think I think everybody will be fine When I go mm-hmm. But when I think of My kids And their age I I that's a that's bit. that's the that's a,
0: bit. That's, a bit.
1: That, that's a bit that's a bit that's a bit that's right. Like who I mean, and God gives grace. Mm-hmm. Let's not yeah, um, does. Let's not overthink this. God gives grace to children and people and different when they go through. But I, I I just when I start thinking about it, like the questions and all that stuff, I'm like, you know what? Pause. So that's that's my take on being at peace with my dad. Yep. yep. I remember you shared a story um, where you set up a show with people sharing. That. Yes. And uh, several guests came and they shared the experience with death and grieving a loved one. Would you care to share that story? For a
0: yeah. So actually, that episode might actually come through because it's part of that talk show. Yeah. Um, so we, I got four uh, members of the panel to agree to share their experiences. It was not easy to come up with that panel. I reached out to more than four. I think the four were the courageous ones. So there were two ladies on the panel and two gentlemen on the panel. We had three camera people supporting us. Um, and so one lady had lost a mother. She's a workmate at PATH, But we also worked together at another project before PATH, And she was willing to talk about the experience of losing a mother. And I knew the story because I'd been with her when the mother was ill. We had very candid conversations, being oversharers, of course. Mm-hmm. And then the other lady was another workmate at PATH. She had lost a daughter, earlier. And then the other one is a colleague from medical school. He was like my business partner. We had like this business of painting rooms at school when I was in school as a way of fundraising. He had lost his mother whilst in medical school. Then another a colleague of mine, he's a friend. He's an HR specialist, very smart guy, had also lost his father. And these guys were courageous enough to agree to sit on the panel. And even before that panel discussion for that show, for that episode, I remember we had like a debrief session. When everybody was in, Everything was set up and everything before we went to sit, because we shot it at a friend's house, a workmate's house. One of the panel members, she offered her house. So we sat like outside. We just made it really relaxed. Sitting outside on, uh, on chairs, on the garden chairs, on the grass, under a tree, in the shade of the of the tree. And of course, we, w- we were in a certain color theme in black and gray. That was a the color theme that was advised by our closet oh. person. And so... When the, when the discussions, before we started the discussion at the DeeperFund, I said, guys, this is really intense, even for me, because at the, that was last year. My father had already died. I was like, this is intense even for me, the host. But I just want us to know that when things get intense on set and you break down, we'll respect that moment, mm. pause, give you your moment, and then we'll only proceed when you're ready to continue. But we will not stop the cameras. You will tell us after the set if you want us to edit that out or you want it to be part of it. And the, show, the, the discussion started and we went through the discussion. I think you could see it, it, was, it was different from the other ones I had hosted, very different. And it was very emotional for me as well. And half the time I was talking to myself and telling myself, Joe, keep yourself together. You are the host. You can't just break down anyhow because countless moments I felt like breaking down as well. But I had to keep talking to myself to keep it all together for the sake of anchoring that episode. But one of the things I noticed also was the camera people were also taking turns to disappear, to go on the other side of the house, without realizing that they were actually having their own moments of breaking down and processing their own grief from their own personal stories. And they would come back, I'm just like, why do these people look like their eyes are red now? But it's because everybody on set could feel how intense it was. And actually one of the panelists broke down. There was a part of the segment where we were talking about Uh, souvenirs and whatnot and things that we hold on to that remind us of our loved ones. He literally broke down on set and we respected that moment and gave him that moment. And once that moment was done, he picked himself together and continued sharing his experience. After that talk show, I will tell you that that talk show left impact on me. It made me realize that that talk show has an opportunity to address certain things to the point where I literally had to start rethinking the process and also redesigning how we can be able to package content in different ways, especially around issues of grief, because that falls in one of the buckets of some of the things we want to talk about. And out of that, a support group was created on WhatsApp, where people sometimes share and say, oh, it's my so-so's memorial now. Today is not easy. And when other people in the office heard about it, they decided to, to join the WhatsApp group as well. It's not very active, but once in a while, somebody will share and say, today is been a difficult day for me. I've missed my so-and-so right. very much. And people will throw in their comments, say, so we are together in this, you know, and it's real talk that... So the experience I had there made me feel like we need more of those spaces for people to talk about the experiences I go through. And it's amazing what that show did because everybody on the panel said it felt like therapy. Mm. It felt like a support group. They felt in a, that they were in a place where they were safe to talk about grief. They were no longer in a space where people were telling them because what was common was for the guys on the, on the panel, everybody had an experience of somebody telling them to be strong. Mm. Mm. You are a man, be strong. Actually, one of the panelists told us how he discovered his father was dead somewhere in Chihuahua, Chibombo on his way to Mansa. So imagine you have to drive all the way from Chibombo to Mansa, and the first thing somebody tells you is you have to be strong. Your father has died, but you have to be strong now. You're a man now. And those are things I also heard when my father died. You're a man now. Be strong for your mother and your brothers. Keep it all together. Give your father a befitting burial. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So at what point am I supposed to grieve and cry and break down if all this is supposed to be all academic and logistical? So, yeah. But for me... That was one of the li- most life-changing uh, shoots I've ever done. And I found it to be therapeutic as well, personally, because I could connect to the discussions that we had. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I, I've done my... I think I shared with you when yes. we spoke. But I've done my uh, piece of it in the... I don't know if you listened to that episode on my no, podcast.
0: No, no, I haven't listened to you that episode to yet. Listen yeah. to
1: to that one because I dealt with, with it, um, mm. publicly at least. Uh-huh. And I called it the, the value of bitterness. Um, mm. And uh, how I dealt with the, uh, the loss of uh, our child. Okay. So, so it's, it's that therapeutic um, value that comes from talking about it and then mm. the experiences. And, but those comments that people make when death happens, sometimes it's just, I always say, I was like, mm. shut up, keep quiet, and see the person. You don't have to say anything, but like, yeah, you're still young. Right. That's what's that supposed to change? All right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy, but it's real. I know people are going through that stuff. Yeah. So, uh, as we transition into the next segment, um, mm-hmm. obviously, when you lose a loved one, there there's a real challenge going on there from a spiritual, physical, mental, financial aspect, and mentally, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a huge struggle. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Building on from the mentioned stuff about how you're doing some work in speaking about mental health, can you share experience with your about your mental health struggles during this time as mm-hmm. well? Aspects that you struggle with mentally when you are having an injury mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can't run and five. Yep. So yep. what what sort of mental health struggles have you gone through building on from this?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for me in terms of my father's death was just coming to acceptance that it had happened. I thought I'd come to accept it, but in actual sense, I hadn't. I thought I'd grieved my father and I had processed that grief and that pain and broken down and let it break me, but I hadn't. And partly because my father died in Livingston, the barrier was going to be in Mumbwa. I was at the center of all the logistics, so I was mostly on phone calls I was driving, I was doing things. I was driving one of the cars from Livingstone all the way to Mumba and back. Immediately after his death, I was appointed as one of the administrators. So now there's a lot of paperwork to go through, reviewing this, reviewing that, making sure everything is in order and everything else. And immediately after that, at my previous project, I was given an opportunity. I was appointed and promoted to a to a position of an acting technical director. An opportunity I almost turned down. But because I had a very logical boss who is very objective, she gave me time to think through it. And then when I came around, I said, okay, fine, I think I can do this. That was also another transition point. So I'm trying to process My father's death like three weeks ago, and I'm taking on this role to be a supervisor to peers, people that I worked with on the project, and people who actually taught me a lot of aspects of the project. It was a very interesting transition, so there wasn't really this time for me to process everything. So I really struggled to accept it, and I didn't realize it until I noticed that whenever I was in Livingston, I was always uh, avoiding being in the room in the evening alone. I was always looking for places or places to go and chill. You get it. Because when my parents were still in Livingstone, whenever I would be in Livingstone, they would come and pick me up or I would go to the house, have dinner with them, and my father would drop me off. So my evenings were always with family. But subconsciously, because there was that void that needed to be dealt with, I would find myself, let's go for a meal, let's go for a drink, let's go this side with friends. Just because I was subconsciously trying to avoid it. Last year, that's when it hit me that actually, this is me trying to avoid this. So now I learned to process it. And to walk the, the, the painful road of being in the room and let the knowledge that my father had died sink in and settle. But also process all the experiences. Because it was the time I'd get to Livingstone up to last year. When I reached the tank there, it becomes the saddest town for me. So I'm looking for every next opportunity to just forget about it, you know. But after I did my conversations with my friend and the therapy... I go to Livingstone now, and it's this bright place. It's this opportunity. It's a place where I see life and I see opportunities. It wasn't that for the last three years. So I really struggled to accept my father's death. I really struggled to come to terms with the fact that he was no more because I had not really processed it and I had not really, really uh, uh, come to terms with it. Up to now, there's moments where I'm just like, oh, like right now, I'm at a point where we just registered a company and I'm trying to strike a lot of partnerships around. And even the people that I was meeting before this podcast... The discussion around a potential partnership, right? And that's something immediately after that, I would have called my father and said, oh, guys, things are happening this side. Us, who are happening in this generation? You know, that type of a thing. And he would laugh about it and you would ask me questions about it. And he would give his own two cents about it. I can't do that anymore. So what I do now is whenever I go to Mumbwa to visit my mother, because now my mother is back in Mumbwa, I spend time with my mother and I talk to her about it. I appreciate the parent that she is to me and my siblings and to people in the family. But I also visit my father's grave and I'll go and give him all the juice, all the gist. So like this year, when I go, there's a lot of gist to share with him because there's a lot of progress I'm making this year. There's a lot of things I've learned this year, a lot of change that has happened for me this year. So there's a lot my father needs to hear about. And I'll probably go and spend some time at his graveside and talk about it and laugh about it and everything else. Because he still means that much to me. He's still a father figure that is still present And I uphold some of the things that I learned from him, not because he taught them to me. My father never sat me down to teach me about leadership. I learned it from him by observing the kind of man that he was. My father never taught me how to be resourceful in an environment. I saw how resourceful he was in the family and in other settings where I had the opportunity to to see him in action. And I learned that being resourceful is important. My father never sat me down to tell me about being more coming and being helpful even to strangers. But I saw that in my parents, that these people are resourceful and helpful even to strangers and they are willing to go an extra mile to be helpful. My father and my mother never sat me down to tell me about the importance of family and being there for family and supporting family beyond your nuclear family. But I saw it in real life, in real time, in our home when I was growing up. So for me, those are the struggles, really. It's mostly accepting. And there's moments where I feel like I would have picked up the phone and called him. And I only came to terms with deleting his number last year after I did that therapy. Because I was just like, ah, if I delete this number, it's like I've, I've, I've let go. One of the things that I also do is I got a briefcase as a souvenir from my father after my father's death. And that briefcase I carry to every important and international meeting. So every international trip I've taken since my father died, I've gone with the briefcase. Recently, I was in SA passing through Aura Tambo. They literally called me the security guys. What are you carrying in that briefcase? and they dollars? I said, let's open it. And they found my laptop, my power bank, my book, and my other two my things. They said, oh, it's just a laptop. I was like, I told you. It's just a laptop. (laughs) Why are you carrying this briefcase? I'm like, it was my late father's briefcase. It's a legacy. I'm taking the name to SA. Mm -hmm. (sighs) So I carry it to every important meeting and every international trip. And that's because it's a reminder for me of the integrity he stood for, the exceptional leadership guys that he stood for. I can talk about it the whole day. How resourceful he was, how proactive he was and how helpful he was to the family. He was like a family man. He was a pillar. He was there for the family and he was bringing people together. And that's me really. Yeah.
1: Amazing. So, obviously you're a person of faith. Yes. um, We've had conversations about this and as a man as well, It's a sensitive topic in the church. Mm -hmm. Mental struggles Mm -hmm. and mental health issues are seldomly talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, Some places, it's even an go area.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is it does not discriminate.
0: It doesn't. Um,
1: Tell me how you've kind of balanced how you're leaning into your faith Mm -hmm. and being able to practically deal with your mental health struggles. And I ask this of all my guests because... Mm -hmm. It's a challenge that mm-hmm, I personally mm-hmm, had. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, how do you do? You balance that because there's your faith. And mm-hmm. The reality is, uh, the basis of our faith mm-hmm. is that we put our hope in Christ, mm-hmm, Jesus, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. He's not saying one goes through these struggles. Mm-hmm. He says mm-hmm. we will, but we can trust Him. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's a practical aspect of dealing with it with
0: the struggles. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um Interesting that we were having a similar conversation just before this podcast, where I went. And the example in the Bible that we looked at, and my colleague shared it, and it's something our bishop was preaching two weeks ago in church. The example of Lazarus. When Lazarus died, when Jesus went to call him out, he showed up at the opening of the tomb. But Jesus actually calls out to people to unwrap him so that he can be free. So he had already been resurrected. The miracle of resurrection had already happened, right? Mm. But he needed people to unwrap him from the clothes of the dead. You get it, huh? And so when I think about faith, I don't look at faith as something that is in a bucket. I look at faith as something that is integral to identity. And because it's integral to identity, you carry it with you wherever you go. So even when you think about mental health, mental health and mental struggles don't take away from the faith. You know why? Because even the Bible talks about how God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. What does that weakness speak to? It's all the struggles all the questions, all the insecurities that we have to deal with. And when we come before God, there is this notion in the church where people feel like you need to come with a perceived perfection Mm -hmm. before God. Mm -hmm. I beg, which Bible are you reading? (laughs) Because Jesus himself in the Bible countless times says, I came to seek and save the lost. Mm -hmm. Lost literally means that, seek and save the lost. You know why? Because the, the, the business that God is in is in the business of dealing with us as we are. Yeah. the psalmist talks about in psalm 139 where it says lord you've searched me and you know me you know when i sit and when i stand you understand my thoughts from afar even before a word is on my tongue you know it where can i run from your presence it even goes to as far as saying the darkness is like day to you even the depth of the sea there in i cannot run from your presence what is the psalmist trying to say he's trying to say that we shouldn't come with a perceived perfection in the house of god God is not interested in the perfection because even the Bible says our righteousness is not about our works. It's about Christ. Our righteousness isn't Christ, right? So that nobody can say it's credited to me. Oh, you know what, guys? I do my tithes, so I am good. No, that's why Jesus gave that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And why I'm, where I'm going with this is we are human beings. We've got our weaknesses where God's strength needs to show up. There's a place for when the miracle happens. And there's a place for where we need to get supported. The other example I can give you is that man who they brought him through the roof. People had to carry him to that place and fight their way to bring him to Jesus because there was a practical aspect that needed to be met for that man to make it to where Jesus was. So there's a place for faith to believe in God and trust in what God is able to do. But even God himself is a practical God who expects us to do certain things to tap into that miracle. Look at the story of, of, uh, of uh, Moses and the Israelites. They get to the Red Sea. The Pharaoh is behind them chasing them. And they are panicking and say, Oh, Moses, so you brought us to die here. And God tells, them, tells Moses, Why are you crying to me? Move forward. And as they move forward, He tells them, Stretch your staff. They had to move forward. They had to stretch the staff for the waters to part. God could have done it on his own. But there's a place where the human, humanity needs to acknowledge Vulnerability and acknowledging vulnerability doesn't mean that you end that prayer. And this problem also comes with grief. I've talked to a number of people. I once posted on the group on, on my WhatsApp status and asked about grief. And the answers I was being given were things like, trust in God, you will see them again. I'm like, I love all that, but I'm a practical Christian. Nobody wants to hear that you're going to see them again when they've lost a loved one. When you lost a loved one, you want to be able to process that moment and begin to move on with that moment. You don't have to come and shut me up. I've heard people say, don't cry like you an unbeliever. I said, hmm, which Bible is this one that you are reading? You know why? Because we are emotional beings created by God. We have to acknowledge that aspect as well. So faith doesn't take away from mental health issues. And we need to talk about them. There's this perceived perfection uh, people would want to, to, to throw around people in the church. I don't subscribe to it. I subscribe to realistic Christianity that allows me to come holistic before God not leave any part of me on the doorstep. When I show up in church, I show up as Joseph. When I show up in ministry, I show up as Joseph. I bring all of me, my strengths and my weaknesses, my struggles and my strengths, my questions and my answers, I bring them there so that God in himself can work on me at the place of prayer, in submission. Because even prayer itself is not about talking to God, it's about communion and submission. So in essence, there's no split for me. It's all part of the faith. Yes, it should be part of the faith and practical.
1: Yeah. Well, good news is we are done with the heavy stuff. Okay. And as we are winding up, I want to bring back the focus on you. Yes. From mental health, but Mm -hmm. now from how you've transitioned from health into health tech. (laughs) So so, I I would like. By profession, you're a medical doctor, yes. right? A qualified medical doctor. Yes, qualified. <laughs> it's not just a medical doctor. <laughs> but that's not what you're doing currently. You're not actively practicing no. um, for your full-time work. And you've been working in digital health for a while. Um, talk me through how you made this transition from
0: medicine into... Into technology. technology. <laughs> yes, so... Um, and why. And why. <laughs> yeah. I was just telling someone today actually about my transition because they asked me a similar question at a meeting I was attending, which is a technology meeting in the health sector. When I completed medical school, I was passionate about emergency medicine. And that's because I'm not built for routine stuff. I learned that very early about me. I'm not built for routine. I'm not built for rhetoric things. I'm not built for figured out things. I thrive in chaos I thrive in places where you need to figure things out. I thrive in a place where you need to solve problems. I thrive in places where things are not clear. That's me by nature. So emergency room was a place for me. So I worked at Levy for my clinical practice. When I finished my, my, my training at Regio, I worked at Levy from 2014. I started working there in September, September 1st, 2014, actually. And I loved being on call. You know why I love being on call? Because that's the day Joseph came through. Because I worked in the, in the casualty and there you could see all sorts of cases. The fun and the thrill of handling different emergencies and figuring them out and putting them together and getting them stabilized to go into the ward was the most rewarding feeling for me. Even on a night where I didn't sleep a single second, I would leave the hospital feeling fired up and refreshed, ready to do the next shift because I was doing work that was connecting with me. Why am I sharing that? That's how I ended up in the digital space. Because when I worked at Levy, three weeks into the job, I was invited to a training in Smart Care, Legacy Smart Care back in the day. And we went to tasker's Hotel in Kawe. I loved workshops when I was in medical school. Good story for another day. I feel like we need to do a part three and a part four to this podcast. <laughs> but when I went to that training, on Monday I walk into the training room and there are these desktops. I'm like, hmm, I love this training. They're having desktops. Because I've reached a point in my life where whenever I going to a workshop, i would have my laptop and I take my notes. So I thought, ah, they are already desktops. I'll be taking my notes. I didn't know there was a technology there. And they introduced us to the idea of the technology. The moment they showed us how to set it up and log in, that was it. I started wandering around. So my friends are still learning how to register a patient, how to edit a patient's record, how to save it on the care card. Me, I've already done that in 30 minutes, and I'm wondering all the different modules. And sometimes I'd get lost and raise my hand, and the trainers are like, where are you this side? You know, I was just supposed to be doing registration. I'm like, sorry. I come back. But I would still be wandering around. I fell in love with smart care on day one. And what excited me was that there was this technology in Zambia built by Zambians, funded by the U.S. government through CDC. and that time, ECPAF was the one managing it. I was fascinated. I couldn't believe it. And so when we came back to Levy, I was waiting for us to start using it, and there was no traction. So I went to the clinical Care and the SMS at the time, and I told them, I can set up a committee. I even made to my terms of reference quickly for being uh, extra. I wrote to my terms of reference, And I showed them to the SMS and the clinical clinical care. They said, go ahead, Joseph. So I went to all the HODs and got representatives, convened the task force. We did elections. I was a vision carrier. I was voted in as a chairperson, being resourceful. And we started moving as a task force. I swear. It started moving at Levy. And CDC heard about it. Agpath heard about it. And they started coming to see what was going on at Levy. And the fascinating thing for people at that time was that most medical doctors were not pro-technology. And they were not pro-technology because of the kind of technology smart care was. But even then, people just generally didn't believe in technology. They believed in paper more than in technology. And for me, I was just this outlier. And people couldn't get a medical doctor, a young medical doctor, fascinated about technology. Who is this guy? So I started being called into meetings. I started getting called into meetings. I was co opted into the national training team for smart care. And because I'm always bringing myself to every conversation, I bring my opinion to the table. I don't leave a part of myself out there. I bring my vibe. I bring my sense of humor. I bring my energy into the room. I leave it all in the room when I show up. People noticed me. And they kept inviting me to more and more meetings. And now I started going to certain meetings for logistics and supply chain systems. I started sitting in meetings discussing lab information systems. At some point when I was still doing my internship at level, I even traveled to Uganda for a high-level meeting to go and meet with MOH officials from Uganda. And their are donors there to help them craft what a digital health thing was going to look like. <laughs> I swear, I was busy, busy overdoing. And then by the time I was completing my internship, I had worked with MOH to support the business analysis for what we now call Smart Care Plus. So I usually tell people that I think God had picked me for Smart Care Plus because from the very, very early stages, even before I did any training in business analysis or worked with any business analyst, I was given content by people from MOH that were like my mentors and they still are my mentors. And I read through that content, and as a clinical person, the only clinical person that was available at the time to lead the process, I started working with them to lead the process. We had this high-level stakeholder meeting and we crafted some of the very first requirements, workflows, and whatever for what ended up being be, being the starting point for requirements for outpatient in Smart Care Plus. And so through that process in 2016, I was posted to Nyimba. And I even reported to Nimba. When I got to Nimba, I was quickly galvanizing people now in Eastern Province, talking to the provincial director and people there about how we can come together with the task force. Again, I'd started. And I'd even gotten invited to a provincial integrated meeting where I even made a presentation on the strategy we could take as a province. For technology, I was taken up. But at that point, I never even thought I'd work in the private sector. For me, it was just a passion to get something done. Little did I know that there was another partner taken over from Eggpath, Broadridge, and they were looking for a doctor who would work on the project. And that's how I got called in, I got interviewed, and I was given a job at Broadridge in 2017 as a product manager for Electronic Health Record Systems to work with a product management team from Jemby. And that's how I transitioned out of clinical practice. A very difficult decision because I got a lot of backlash from fellow medical doctors, from friends, from family, because at the time when I moved to Broadridge, I also had a letter in hand from the provincial health director, after only working for two months in Nyimba, appointing me to go to Sinda as acting district health director, a position that had been vacant for over six months. It was a difficult decision. And when I moved, I swear, 2017 was the hardest year for me because that year I was transitioning from the government to the private sector. We just had our first child, and then we had to shift back to Lusaka. There were a lot of moving pieces. And wherever I showed up, I can tell you, Jacob, all I was getting was backlash, except few people in the profession that I hold very dear because up to this day, there have always been objective voices of reason. And these are people that would meet me and ask me what I'm doing and they objectively give me advice on things to look out for, the things to avoid, how to stay the course, how to build myself, how to grow and learn. The rest, they even gave me a title of being a malingerer. <laughs> it was hard in 2017 and 2018. 2019 was also hard. But 2020 going forward, I'm an apologetic about it. I show up in meetings and somebody asks me, what do you do? I'm like, I do inclusive innovation and digital health. What does that mean? I can explain it to you. I can show you how we do it. Why did you transition? I will explain it to them clearly. I've also reconciled with that because it took me time because all I was getting was negative vibes from within the profession, from friends and family. There are very few friends. There are very few fellow professionals who supported me at the time when everybody was saying, why do you like money so much? Young people, you know, you should focus on core business You're a medical doctor. You're supposed to be seeing people in the hospital. Actually, this year, one of my relatives actually brought it up and said, so when are you going back to the hospital? I said, "Mm, why should I go back to the hospital? And they go like, do you know that when God comes, he's going to judge you? I said, "Hmm? how is he going to judge me? (laughs) Because you ran away from the hospital. I've had a lot of interesting conversations, Jacob, I swear. (laughs) But now I am settled in this space. I found my spot. I love what I do. And it's fun all the way. Do
1: you miss practicing?
0: I miss the emergency room. When I go to facilities to do like inclusive innovation work and business analysis, the only part I miss is the emergency room because I thrive in chaos. I thrive where there's pressure. I, I don't thrive when things are okay. I thrive where there is pressure. And I thrive where things need to be figured out. And even the cases I loved in the hospital, was not those direct cases where like, you know, it's an asthmatic attack. No. It's those cases where you're checking this and that. They're not adding up. You can't put it into one thing. Yeah. Those are the ones. Because I'm built to figure things out. I'm built to start things. Yeah. I'm built to shape things and not to just follow through. Yeah. Okay.
1: So where do you want to get in terms of where you are currently, in what you're currently doing in digital health?
0: Mm-hmm. Where do I want to get? That 's a very difficult question to answer jacob and i'll tell you I'll, I'll, and I'll tell you why, and that 's because now i I'm, I'm, I'm getting into organizing my passion for team building human resource services and project management solutions, and so there's a company we've already registered with my colleagues, right, and we're already making strides towards establishing that, and that's something I think I might end up doing more of than even this in the digital health space specifically um i'm working towards becoming more of a consultant than a full-time employee i feel like consultancies are great you know why i like consultancies i feel like it takes away from this thing where you've got a secured job for eight to five to eight eight to five p.m that you are sure that okay i have this job and i'm going to get paid at the end of the month but it takes you into this place where you are working towards something tangible i like to work towards something something specific and something very definite. So I'm positioning myself to take up more of consultancies. I've done a few consultancies in the landscape. Currently, I'm also doing another consultancy with another organization, but this is the place where I'm setting myself up for. And I want to do consultancies around inclusive innovation, user experience type of work, uh, uh, anything to do with problem solving, anything to do with product management, requirements gathering, and those types of things. I also want to to set, set myself up to be a resource, especially with artificial intelligence, to be that bridge that helps to keep the human element el- uh, essential in the dawn of artificial intelligence. Yeah,
1: is it? Yes. I, I, I haven't said this publicly, but I'll say it anyway. It's it's one of the areas I have no and, and by no interest yeah. in. Mean, <laughs> um, not that I understand the stuff. Really. Uh-huh. Yeah, you do. On the whole stuff, but I. Yeah. I'm I'm. I'm I think I like what you say about it because you're trying to see the positive on it. Like, yes. I, I can't get myself <laughs> to wrap your head around it. <laughs> to see how this doesn't end in a bad way. I know. I and, know. Yeah. and it's, it's crazy. Yeah. But I don't want to take away from that conversation. But I love that because you're bringing the human-centeredness. I mean, they all talk the about AI. Yeah. It's, yeah. About it's about, about machines. Human yes. and yes. yes. But, and a big but.
0: Yeah there's a, a there's, yeah, there's a human side. I think we can have a follow-up discussion. Yeah, there's a human side, about yeah. It.
1: yeah. But you, you mentioned daily doses. So let's yes. get into daily doses. Today, I saw logos and all that. And
0: <laughs> hey, hey, hey I, I, I,
1: I'm putting it out there. I, w- I know. Wherever this goes, I participated in advising of which course. direction the logo should go. And of course. Put it out there, yes. putting my flag there. So <laughs> yes, yes. Can I just say... And uh, I, I don't know if I've said this before. It's a brilliant idea. It's a great concept. And uh, uh, being an entrepreneur myself, I feel like um, the moment you do something that resonates with who you are, it allows you to be yourself, and then extends to others, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you've got it on it. Such that I always say this. Your bank account may not reflect...
0: Mm-hmm, you know, not mm-hmm, match up, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. but man, you can't measure the intangible that it brings and something. Yeah, you're successful, I'm like, yes. Yes. That's because a thing. when I'm doing this, I don't I don't feel like I'm working. You exactly. Know I mean it's just so that's 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 really it's daily doses and I'm thinking of you. I'm just thinking about Gosh, I'm like, where's the next doses. event? I'm gonna be there, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it personifies who you are. Yeah and and so it's, it's a great thing. Talk me through the idea. I mean, you mentioned it through this conversation at different mm-hmm. points, mm-hmm. the idea, the birth and idealization mm-hmm. of of uh, Daily Doses.
0: So Daily Doses started as a philosophy which carried me through my weight loss journey. Mm-hmm. And it also carried me through COVID-19 because uh, it was actually birthed after I recovered from COVID-19 uh-huh. uh, in 2021. And so once it was, it was birthed, I initially had a page called jk ideas on facebook when i we coined this daily doses with my colleague who is actually a work here at path helped me come up with all these different names daily doses resonated and i could i could connect to it it made sense it was tangible it was practical there was nothing theoretical about it nothing too cl- uh, classroom based or academic about it so i even changed my page to daily doses with jk and that's i, I throw different doses there and, and why daily doses really resonates is because, first and foremost, the philosophy of the fact that, number one, nothing changes until you change. Two, nothing changes until you change something that you do daily. So if you want to change something about your life, and you can't begin to figure out that one thing you can start doing every day, starting today, then you're not ready to change. Then it won't happen. And that's what the whole daily dos- doses with JK philosophy came from. And then when we started the idea of registering our company, I brought in shareholders. One of them is my wife. The other one is an HR specialist. And we started putting together different names of possible names for the company. We had like 11 names. And trust me, the first 10 names were not even Daily Doses. (laughs) Daily Doses just came in as an addition from my wife. She goes like, I feel like let's also add Daily Doses Innovations to it. And I added it in there reluctantly because I thought to myself, even though we go with a different company name, Either way, part of our philosophy and culture as a company is going to be anchored on daily doses, yeah. daily habits, daily choices. Ah! We submitted to Pac. Guess his name came out. <laughs> I know that process. You know, that has happened to me.
1: That has happened to me, and I ended up with him. I still loved it, though. That's... I know, right? Yeah, and there's three other people who have told me the same uh-huh.
0: so... <laughs> So, yeah, that's how the name that came through. And you know, Pakra doesn't give you the chance to negotiate. No, no, They just send you a letter saying the that name that is approved in. is Daily Dossers right. Innovation. I'm like, what? Yeah. So then I'm just like, I already have a Facebook page, Daily Dossers with JK. Yeah. I have all these hashtags I'm throwing all over on LinkedIn, on my WhatsApp status. Even my account, I think on TikTok is Daily Dossers with JK mm-hmm. and whatnot. I'm just like, wow. So, um, I was just like, okay, fine. It's not the name we preferred, but I can work with this. And that's because it embodies a philosophy, really. And so, Daily, excuse me, daily Doses Innovations is registered with PACRA. We just completed the registration with ZRA. We are in active discussions with different stakeholders because of how broad the vision is for positioning for partnerships. Some of them are almost being landed. But the, the, the three buckets of work are team building. And there's a way we are seeing team building, there's always seeing human resource services and how we want to support that. And there's always seeing project management solutions. And in all these things, we want to embed the philosophy and culture of daily doses. We want to embed the philosophy and culture of things, practical things. So we don't want just, just the things where people are. So there's this notion that people don't do certain things that they're supposed to do because they do not know. I have also learned about it in the work that I do at Path that it's not awareness that is a problem. No. Usually, the problem is the how, and daily doses comes on the practical how processes. There's a lot of tools that we we have at our disposal that help to translate some of these things into the practical how, and that's why we we are currently in active discussions for partnerships because we are thinking about something holistic, okay. and something that is robust and something that is accessible as well. Okay. I'm very excited about daily doses innovations. I know that it has potential to grow into a lot of into a lot of spaces locally and internationally um there's a lot of things the zambian market can benefit from but the way we're positioning it is we are also looking into the international market because of some of the products and services we are thinking about and possible partnerships that we are currently pursuing so it's really exciting Amazing. the daily doses you, you innovations should, should limited me the,
1: yeah you should send me the links to this so we can put it out there and people can see not a problem facebook linkedin and yes um, other links as well yeah But I I did do some digging as well. Yes. And so I found there's destiny doses.
0: Yes, hashtag destiny doses.
1: Obedience doses.
0: Hashtag obedience doses.
1: Christmas doses. Hashtag Christmas doses. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about those segments.
0: Yeah, so there's this whole thing where I'm just like, if I want to make something really sound interesting and catchy, I add a hashtag to it. So hashtag destiny doses is um, whenever I share content around spirituality, I call it hashtag destiny doses because I believe in destiny, I believe in purpose, I believe we carry something unique, each one of us. And that's why I'm a big proponent of be comfortable in your own skin, be comfortable in your own capacity, in your uniqueness, in your authenticity. Show up as yourself anywhere you go, I swear, on a bus, on a plane, in a meeting, whether you're meeting with a president, whether you're meeting with a colleague or a friend, just show up. Why? Because I believe in destiny, in purpose, and how unique each one of us is. I tell people that we can be classmates. I was in a class of over 60 students. We all graduated as medical doctors. We learned anatomy, physiology, da-da-da-da-da-da. But you know what? None of my classmates can learn to be the doctor that I am because there's only me. Me. There's only me. So there's this thing people talk about, no, I'm limited edition, da-da-da-da-da-da. I don't do that. What we do here is, I am the only edition. <laughs> <laughs> then there's that thing of saying I'm cut from a different cloth. No, me when I was made, I am the only fabric. So you can't even say there's a leftover somewhere. Yeah. I am the only fabric. And the reason the I'm, I'm saying that is because I want to move away from this place of competition and comparison. Mm-hmm. True. So Destiny Dossers is about reminding people about their uniqueness and the, the purpose and the authority they carry. When, they, when you walk in your uniqueness, you can walk into a meeting and there are people who are more technically sound compared to you.
1: Yeah.
0: But they can't compare to how you bring your technical expertise (laughs) because you are operating in your place of destiny. Obedience, says is a a concept that speaks to the concept of obedience from a biblical perspective. When the Bible says, if you walk in obedience, uh, Deuteronomy 28, people read Deuteronomy 28 and focus on the blessings that are promised, but they forget the precondition of obedience. The Bible says, if you obey, then... It lists countless blessings. So obedience doses is a reminder about how we need to obey the process, obey the principles, obey purpose and destiny. Christmas doses is doses I I, I, I dispense during Christmas time and share some love and warmth with people out there because I know Christmas means a lot to all of us. And Christmas is a time that is regarded as family time. So I dish out Christmas doses around Christmas and share just basic principles and reflections around Christmas that I feel should be about practice, about culture, about family, about people. Not just about what am I getting. I'm like, what are you giving in Christmas, really? So it's hashtag, so many things. (laughs) Now there's even what I call hashtag becoming doses.
1: Becoming doses, yeah. Because I'm just
0: like, success is not about pursuing anything. It's about becoming the type of person that is successful. You know, even promotion. I was talking to somebody yesterday. I said, promotion is not something you can pursue. You you get promoted by becoming the type of person that is ready for the next role. For the it will be obvious that this guy we're not we're not completely using him. Give him this as well because he can do more because you are becoming the kind of person that is ready for your next opportunity. Yeah, so that's those are the the hashtags can go on.
1: Can go on. Well, as I as I close, I want us to end with. Uh, obviously, guess we can have some open conversation, but. I found something else that caught my attention okay. when I was digging, and I, it had to do with something else. It's uh-huh. another hashtag. Okay. It's called Healing Ideas.
0: Hashtag Healing Ideas. <laughs> yes. So the hashtag Healing Ideas comes from um, a combination. So there was Heal, which is health and love, which is the weight loss, weight management thing that we do with my wife. And there was JK Ideas that was initially supporting specifically team building and this type of corporate culture pieces. So the blend of it is a hashtag healing ideas where there was a blend of the inclusive pieces in JK Ideas and the health and wellness bit in HEAL. So it becomes healing ideas. So in essence, this holistic thing where we are able to work with you and support you to be able to meet your needs as an individual from a health and wellness perspective that helps you to become something that is useful and productive in a corporate space. That's the hashtag healing ideas. Oh, wow. Because at some point, all this started under one umbrella. So there's another company we registered in 2021 with my wife that is going to completely focus on health and wellness. Oh, so anything health and wellness, weight loss, weight management, uh, healthy eating, exercise, is all going to be under... Another company called Obumi Ideas Institute. That one has a local name. Hmm. Yeah, and then we've put out the team building, and because it was now growing into these three buckets of team building, HR, and project management, so we pulled it out, become a separate company altogether.
1: Ah, Great things out there. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Do you know, I got news for you. We're almost hitting two hours. Oh my god! Oh my god!
0: For oversharing and talking too much. I guess it's going to be part one and part two.
1: Yeah, I feel like I should have you on my podcast every week. <laughs> 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 I, we, we just, we just, we haven't even started. We haven't even yeah. gotten yeah. to yeah. a lot of stuff we should, we should yeah. talk about. But yeah. it's, it's been great. Yeah. Um, as usual, I enjoy listening to you and learning from you as well. And it's always a fun conversation and you're taking out as much as two hours to come and do this. Yeah. Six months later. I'll add that? I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Six months later. Yeah, it's, Six it's, months later. It's great. Um, yeah. but in terms of um this is just way out of my, <laughs> my line of questioning, <laughs> but in terms of reading, what what do you
0: read? <laughs> That's a very interesting one. And I'm and I'm laughing because generally I'm not a fan of reading. <laughs> Uh, I'm, a f- I'm an audiovisual learner. So okay. YouTube is my favorite go-to place. So I do a lot of learning from YouTube. I call it YouTube University. Mm-hmm. I shared about it on my page a few, like last year. And a number of people found that video quite helpful to talk about YouTube and how you can learn from it. Some people just thought that YouTube is just for music mm-hmm. or for other things. I was like, Funny do you videos. know <laughs> that YouTube is a whole university? Sometimes I feel like I market YouTube too much. But there's a lot I learned from YouTube. But in terms of reading... Um, in the last two years or so, I've been part of a book club and I've read, quite, I've read in quotes-unquotes but listened to a number of books. A number of books that stood out for me was Atomic Habits by James Clear. He, he, he breaks things down so well to something as to the level of a habit and choice that I found transformative. Another book that I found helpful was two books on financial space, Smart Money Woman and The uh, Richest Man in Babylon. Those two have very interesting principles about finances and financial management. I found them quite insightful and super, super helpful. The other one that also I recently stumbled upon was something called Tiny Habits by another gentleman. So Atomic Habits focuses more on identity-based change. So it focuses on things like when the why is clear and strong enough, the what, the who, the where, the what and what becomes easy. Yet Tiny Habits is what I call the other side of the coin because it focuses more on things like When you can't change, it's not just about you. It's about your motivation, your ability, and prompt. So there's this whole graph, which I find really... So when I put tiny habits and atomic habits together, it's a complete story for me, because there's identity and there's there's ability, motivation, and prompts here that can complement each other to drive change. And what I like about these two books is because when they talk about change, they don't talk about drastic things. Most of us fail to change because we're expecting drastic change. But anything that has to change and stay has to be gradual change. Yeah. And I like the way tiny habits say things like, you know, children learn how to walk when they're really tiny, like a small human being walking. But you see what that does is they are learning to do these things as a tiny human being. So when they fall, it's an easier fall. But now imagine if you had to learn how to walk when you're tall, like you and I. Yeah, The fall yeah. is going, going to be like, git, git. you know, massive and yeah. So those are some of the books that stood out. I'm currently reading a book by one of the Zambian uh, authors, um, Yangeni Chendela. He's written a book, Become Unstoppable. I'm currently reading it. He's got like 50 lessons in there. I think I've read up to like lesson 29. Very very interesting, insightful conversations about common things that sometimes you just don't pay attention to. There's a lot of interesting things that he brings out in there. But one of the things that stood out for me is a conversation around Efficiency in the work environment. Just because you come early mm-hmm. to the office and leave late doesn't make you the most hardworking employee that should be ready for the next promotion. What do you get out of it? Like, what do you bring to the table? And when I read that chapter, it synthesizes this question that I ask people these days. I ask people the question around, what skills do you have that you can sell? And you find that people who are in jobs that are paying them money can't even give you a clear answer. I'm like, so why are you being paid? Because you have to sell a skill either for a salary, a consultancy, a gig or whatever. But you need to be clear what skill you carry. Forget about your professional qualifications because I already have it on your CV. But what skill do you have? And that reflection came from that chapter when I read that chapter from Yangeni Chandela's book. It's a very insightful book and it's available locally. It's a very interesting book. You should find
1: out. I've been trying to find local authors. Yeah. Because most of the stuff around uh, Uh, local authors is historical, political history, that kind of thing.
0: It's a very nice small book. I have That one is the only book I've read that is hard copy because all the other books are PDF. I put them on my phone. I've got an application called The Voice. It reads them out loud to me. I'm more of a hard, hard, copy. hard copy
1: so you would like yeah. this
0: one by Yang and because and yeah. like, yes, it's got hard. hard copies yeah.
1: I hard copies I still do audio and videos uh-huh. like one of the books that I read early or uh, well, listened to early when I was starting out jumping out as an entrepreneur is the 10 distinctions between millionaires mm. and the rest I forget the author I may mean. mention mm. the name but I was, I I'll send that. Uh, that please send me well. yeah. it's, it's awesome uh-huh. because it brings out like critical things in just 10 wow. examples and it was like good well, this has been awesome and great and fun. And I'm sure the listeners will, will really love this when it's, we put it out. Um, usually with conversations like this, there's like literally no edits. I love it. Yep. <laughs> Send it as it is and, Yep. and people get to listen to it. Um, thanks, Joseph, for doing this. I uh, hope we can have you back
0: thanks a lot for having Couple me more time. yeah thanks for having me thank you for having me and it's been a pleasure I love um, I love sharing and talking to people and sharing what I know because you never know could be the only opportunity that you have to share exactly. when you put content out there it might outlive you beyond your tombstone True. Yeah. yeah okay yeah. that's a wrap thank you
1: <laughs> that was such great fun Joseph and I always have a great laugh whenever I have a chat with him And I learned a lot from him throughout this conversation. Such an authentic human being with very contagious energy. Hope you enjoyed listening to him and learned quite a lot from him. Well, that does it for this episode of the Pretender Podcast. Please continue to send in your feedback on the contact provided in the episode notes. Please remember to rate and review my show. And if you don't want to miss an episode, bookmark it on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or follow my show. Wherever you get your podcast from and you get notifications every time I post an episode. Thanks for listening. I'm out.
0: Inaindeshwa na AfriPods.